On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the dueling Trump O'Rourke rallies in El Paso, an apology from the Secretary of State, where Texas lawmakers are headed on property tax reform, and yet another San Antonio special election. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. The Texas A&M University System. Explore the Texas A&M University System with John Sharp at tamus.edu. And the Texas Dental Association. The Texas Dental Association is the voice of dentistry in Texas. Learn more at tda.org. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Thursday, February 14th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by your Valentine and mine, Evan Smith. We should record this podcast at Dave and Buster's. <laughs> it would be quieter and there'd be fewer interruptions. It's true. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Very good at skee-ball, by the way. Speaking Patrick of is? Dave and Buster's, I, I suspect. A- and yes? ping pong. You- I'm not good at skee-ball. How's no. your skee-ball game? I'm not good at skee-ball. One person who really is good at skee-ball is our urban affairs reporter, soon to be Texas Tribune night editor, Brandon Formby. Hi. Do you know what we're talking about? Are you in a league or I something? I know what or? skee-ball is. I know what Dave and Buster's is, too. You do? Yeah, yes. he spends, he has every birthday party. <laughs> every birthday party in the last 10 years there. Creepy. As always, creepy. folks, we will take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook, so uh. feel free to send them our way using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, Patrick, let's start with you and your trip to El Paso, your uh, big uh, O'Rourke-Donald Trump split-screen night. Uh, Also, I just heard, learned that you drove all the way to El Paso, which is a subject of fierce debate in this (laughs) office, apparently. Tell us how your trip was, and not the stops at Bucky's, the uh, actual political reasons you were there. You stayed over in Van Horn. Well, there are are actually no Bucky's on the the trip. Was it lovely in Van Horn? Yeah. Yeah, I like Van Horn. There's a Holiday Inn Express there. It's, It's relatively new. All right. It's clean, very clean. Already left the Google review. Did you really leave a Google review? Yeah. <laughs> what? You understand that we get paid to do this? Do you know how much I... You what leave is Google wrong with reviews us? of random hotels <laughs> in Van Philosophically, I rely on Google reviews so much, you got to give back into the system. Is that right? So, like, Patrick Svitek's <laughs> Yelp reviews would be a good Tumblr. Yeah. That would be a good Tumblr. <laughs> okay. After this trip, guest, I have a lot of research. Okay. Do you use your real name? Does he use his real name? Like I don't Batman say anything like 126. What does he do? Does he use his real name? Bed bugs in... Uh, All right, Patrick, uh, tell us how it went, for real. Yeah, so this was a big moment for for both of these these politicians, obviously. For O'Rourke, it was this, um, you know, real reemergence as a potential presidential candidate. Obviously, he reemerged a little bit earlier this month with that Oprah interview. Uh, But this was his his opportunity uh, to provide, as you said, you know, kind of a split-screen contrast with the president um, in his hometown on an issue that he has sought to make himself a central figure in the debate over. Um, and the same went for you know Trump. Obviously, Trump is on his side of the aisle has tried to make immigration and border security his top issue. And so it couldn't have been kind of a better moment, I think, for either of them as it relates to politics in the, in the 2020 presidential race. And, uh, you know, for O'Rourke, I mean, it was very much like a campaign event from his Senate race last year, just in terms of the kind of free-flowing, crowded, um, kind of unscripted nature of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that he probably walked, you know, left that event on Monday night feeling more encouraged about 2020, even though he didn't really talk. He, there, a lot of reporters were there and surrounded him and asked him questions about 2020, and he turned away basically all those questions and just tried to keep the focus on the, the message of the, the rally. Um, but I, I think, it, you know, it's pretty clear that after the kind of reception that he got there uh, that he's, you know, not feeling more encouraged about uh, a national race. 
that he is feeling more that nourished. he is yeah, yeah yeah right yeah you have a whole bunch of people running who no one is clamoring for to run everyone's clamoring for him to run he's in right. a very small club historically of people who are who are effectively being drafted to run so right. does the air get out let out of the balloon the moment you actually decide you're running yeah because the minute you right. you're running you suck right everybody sure. hates you yeah right they all shoot at you yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the really, this is, I think, the existential question. I'm curious if Patrick uh, agrees with this. Will he scale? Does he scale? It's mm-hmm. a little bit like a tech company. You know, tech startup happens and they, okay, we've got this little market that we built and everything. And then does it scale? The question is, can he take that Jesus Christ superstar type political campaign where it's, you know, the big guy and then a bunch of disciples? It's not an organization of peers. It's not an organization of multiple principles. There's the guy and then there's everybody in flea flowing Rose, right. smoking pot, dancing around him. Can that scale upward to 50 states? Can you do a national campaign, you know, based on that approach? Because a lot of people say, well, I'm not really sure that that loosey-goosey campaign style yeah. will work at the national level. I think that's Nobody a real, knows anything. I think that continues to be a real consideration for him as he thinks about 20 is if he's able to stay true to the kind of campaign he ran statewide in 18 and take that national in 20. And that's a, a real question, I think. How similar would that, would his style be to a Bernie Sanders campaign? Well, I think, I mean, it would be in some ways less formal than a Bernie Sanders campaign, just in terms of the mechanics of running the campaign. Right. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, for whatever you want to say about him, he had a pretty professionalized campaign He's in the heat of the primary. a conventional politician I mean, for Bernie you know, Sanders. He had, you know, he had, you know, well-orchestrated, you know, uh, rallies with advanced teams and, and whatnot. I mean, he ran a pretty professionalized campaign, at least by the time he was a very serious contender mm-hmm. for the nomination. Um, you know, I think O'Rourke is trying to figure out a way to, uh, continue to run this kind of unvarnished campaign where it's just him and some aides in a, in a rental car driving across the country. And where you're using aspiration and inspiration and authenticity right, as, as, the, as the glue that connects you and your followers. And, and sort of the part B of that is, will issues ultimately be more of a part of this campaign if he runs for president than they were during the Senate race? Because for all of the issue differences between Cruz and O'Rourke, Really, what propelled O'Rourke in that Senate race, I've come to believe in my own mind, was aspiration and inspiration, affect, personality. And can you run a national campaign based on that? And it's a much more crowded environment at the national. There are going to be 30 people running for president. Right. And all of them are going to have money, and they're going to try to open him up with oppo research like a boiled peanut. How hard is it going to be for him to sell himself to Dems in other states considering he couldn't win in his home state in eighteen? I think they like him in other states. There are people in other states with Beto signs in their yards where they didn't have him on the ballot. Right, yeah. I don't think to Democrats in other states the fact that he lost the Senate race is disqualifying in any way. I Particularly think in, in, some in ways, Texas, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think people give him a lot of credit, obviously, for it being closer than many people expected. And so I don't think that's a hurdle for him in, in other states. Now, obviously, the Republicans, that's their main talking point against him as a presidential candidate is, you know, this guy couldn't even win in Texas. Why can he run nationally? But in terms of how that, that uh, plays gr- with other is, Democrats, that I don't think it's a grunge band problem. and long right. hair. <laughs> grunge band? Yeah. Was it about punk, I guess. Yeah, Alice in Chains? What are you talking about? <laughs> Grunge band. One of your old favorites. I, I was... I, true, fact check true, actually. I, I fact think, yes. true. This is, I guess it's kind of self-evident, but I think these rallies on um, the dueling rally scene also highlighted, you know, the fact that if he joins a presidential race, he'd probably... Think um, there's so many candidates, but he'd be the only the only candidate actually from the border, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of an underappreciated 
Well, come on. Um, the, the, the Republicans think San Antonio is the border of Fox well, News. Exactly. In that right? case. <laughs> but other than the Castro. Democratic primary appeal, I think yeah. there's a cognizance that he would be the only you know candidate uh, from the border. Now that doesn't Although mean Julian he, Castro is the only yeah. candidate whose family crossed the border. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Now that doesn't mean he does, he lays exclusive claim to being able to speak powerfully about immigration and border security. Julian Castro, we've we've seen do that before, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but I think that that's a little bit of an underappreciated fact. I think that's what the the rallies brought out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've on you've, we've all mentioned crowded field. I wanted to actually just talk about the crowds at these competing rallies because there's been so much competing information on the sizes. So you were outside at the O'Rourke rally, right? I was, yeah. Yes. And so what was that crowd like? Was that a huge crowd? Was that a, I mean, I saw, I think at one point, someone saying, oh, there are only 200 or three. Oh, Trump well, said 200 Somebody, yes. Somebody then, said. But then I yes. saw on Twitter, other Republicans John Barron saying, said like, only two to 300 people. Oh, there are only 900 right. people there. The El Paso Times, it seemed to say thousands. What What was it like? Yeah, I mean, I, I always hate, as a reporter, I hate guessing on these things. You mean but you it, can't count like, crowds? Oh, you don't know oh, how to please. count crowds? You went to Northwestern, Brainiac. <laughs> right. Do the math. Come on. Journalism he was a journalism student, math. please. <laughs> no, false. You got a degree from that so school. At the, at the O'Rourke the rally, probably took which, statistics. Was, which was held at this baseball field, um, the O'Rourke campaign, or the O'Rourke team, one of his aides, was telling reporters that there were about 7,000 people there, and they said that was based on a law enforcement estimate. Now, I haven't seen anybody actually track down who was the law yeah, enforcement Yeah, but it wasn't official. two to 300, was it? Yeah, but it, it was, certainly was much more than what Trump portrayed it to be inside right. his rally. I think he said, you know, uh, I don't know, 200 Yeah, 200 to 300, 200 to 300 from yeah. the stage, yeah. Certainly it more, was like Beto, his wife, you and Annie that. Leibowitz, and that was yeah. just four people <laughs> at the rally, yeah, nobody else. I, you know, I would, I would definitely estimate that there were thousands of people at the O'Rourke event. Um, I don't know if I'd go as high as 7,000. That mm-hmm. struck me as a bit of a generous estimate, but there was no doubt there was a huge turnout. Um, you know, And I think Trump also got a, a, a pretty big turnout as well. Yeah, where do there you was... think those people came from? Because El Paso, these are not all you know Trump supporters in El Paso. These people, must, I'm assuming, must have been driving from hours away unless they... F- you know, flooded over well, from Kyle New Mexico. Biederman. I saw Kyle Biederman there. We know he came in from someplace else. We know yeah. Dan Patrick was shyly hiding in the corner, according right. to Trump. Yeah. There's Dan Patrick, yeah. Lieutenant Governor. He's so shy. He's in the corner. Yeah. I don't was... know if I like that story better or the story that Sid Miller wanted Trump to go crazy and Dan Patrick talked him down. It was really a kind of an interesting moment when Dan, Dan Patrick was the voice of reason there. That was great. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Yeah. There was actually... Uh, this morning on Twitter, Brad Parscale, Trump's campaign manager. Oh, that's manager. who said he thought there were only 900 yeah, people no, there. I, that's who I saw on know, Twitter. Obviously, take some of this with a grain of salt, but he he tweeted out a screenshot of the RNC uh, data interface that showed where people who registered for the rally, now this is just people registered, not people who attended, where they were from, which zip codes. And there was actually a lot in that corner, that quadrant of New Mexico, mm-hmm. so I guess the south. Uh, east corner and then you had people you had you had it pulling in from outside el paso in texas and then midland odessa which is rural I think, communities and then yeah I midland's think, like three hours yeah three or four hours um so i thought that was a, l- a little interesting because that was one of my main questions going into it was where do you draw republican people from obviously el paso is not a, a republican city and you don't have a lot of uh republican population centers near el paso either um, I guess Midland Odessa would be the closest big Republican. Mm-hmm. Well, all those rural communities, area. I mean, look, Big Bend is three hours away. And the fact is all those rural communities aren't voting for Democrats. Right. Maybe Harold Cook. Right. Marathon, that's it. <laughs> um, what we need here is Sean Spicer to come in and yeah. tell us that this exactly. was the biggest rally ever. <laughs> 
Period. I don't think it falls in that category. Right. But, all right, before our next topic, I'd like to thank a couple more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Hospital Association. Texas hospitals are at the forefront of reform, leading efforts to improve patient outcomes and cut costs. See Texas hospitals' priorities for a healthier Texas at tha.org slash 2019 legislative session. And the Texas Farm Bureau. Winds of change bring fresh faces to agriculture, and more than 257,000 U.S. farmers are millennials. More at texasfarmbureau.org. Brandon, you uh, spending a lot of your spare time farming? Oh, wait, you're not a millennial. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the reason. You, you, you are an old person's idea of a young person, though. Well, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, like, one like governor, Al Gore. <laughs> Brandon, one of Governor Abbott's uh, top legislative priorities is slowing property tax growth, uh, and lawmakers appear to be operating at a breakneck speed this session to try to move this priority through. What happened this week? Yeah, the um, Senate Property Tax Committee, um, which is a new committee uh, that uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick formed um, has already passed out SB2, which is um, you know one of the priority bills. It's aimed at not cutting property taxes, but limiting property tax growth. Um, and they passed it out in only their second meeting. Um, they had a, a marathon meeting last week, went about I mean over 12 hours, wow. and then this week in just a matter of a couple hours added a few amendments and then sent it on to the full Senate. And so do we have any um, real understanding or agreement that the version that the Senate is moving so fast on is something that would be uh, tenable, amenable in the House? It doesn't appear so. And also, <laughs> it, it, it it's not exactly clear that it's going to get out of the Senate. Um, at this at, rate of 2.5. Right. They've, um, you know, set this threshold that would allow voters to weigh in um, on how much, you know, local governments collect in property taxes at, you know, only letting them grow 2.5% on existing properties. This doesn't count property taxes on, you know, new developments and everything. Um, city and county leaders last week, you know, pushed back on that, said it was too low, and the, the Senate Property Tax Committee wasn't really having any of it. They shot down, kind of out-argued them, shot down, um, you know, a lot of their um, complaints, pass it out this week. Um, so kind of last week it looked like, yeah, they were going to stick at 2.5. This week, I mean, even, you know, the bill author and the, the chair of the committee, uh, Senator Paul Betancourt, um, you know, wouldn't say that he's adamant at it sticking at 2.5. You have a lot of people in the House who are saying, you know, 2.5 is a little low. Where it's at now, 8% is too high. Um, what's really difficult is pinning anybody down on where they think it should go. Uh, Republicans tried to pin Senator Hinojosa down on that. Last week, he wouldn't say, um, and then I tried to pin but He Senator voted Bettencourt. present in committee, didn't he? Correct. He didn't vote for the bill or against the bill. Correct. He just voted present. And so uh, what's your guess of where this will end up? I mean, obviously somewhere between 2.5 and 8, but um, on the— I would guess probably maybe around like 3.5 mm -hmm. or some combination of a, a, of a flat growth rate and indexed to something, mm -hmm. whether that's inflation or— something else, um, I think that might be the way they end up going. I have a theory that what's going on here is this was table stakes. You know, Betancourt likes to joke that the House was at 6, the Senate was at 4, they agreed to compromise at 2.5. Yuck, 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 mm -hmm. right? Right. I actually think that where the Senate's going to end up with this is at 4. I think where this is going to end up is at 4. And the Senate will go, oh, shoot, we had to compromise. Mm -hmm. But what they actually are getting is exactly what they wanted last time. Totally. It's a total own of the House. You start right. with it's like a the total, opposite of a yeah. salary negotiation. You're going to have to yeah. negotiate. Chairman Zerwas uh, sat for my uh, podcast this week for our Point of Order podcast, and he was not feeling 2.5. I think Brandon is exactly right. Mm -hmm. The mood in the House is 
it needs to be lower than eight. But even if it gets to, even if it's four or five, this would still be extraordinary, an extraordinary version of events given what happened last session. So, I mean, what's different this time? Is it just that Joe Strauss is not there? That's what uh, Senator Betancourt says. Betancourt blamed Strauss previously for having kept this issue from passing, right? right that for some compromise. Um, look, we can't discount the effect of the elections. If you believe every elected official I've talked to, at least, maybe you all have had the same conversations. They say, voters told us they wanted us to fix property taxes. They're giving us one session to deal with this, and if we don't do it, they're coming for us next time. I think that there is much up the street as much concerned about not doing something as doing the wrong thing. So they're going to do something, and they're going to try to find something that they can all live with so that they can go back home and say, we reformed your property tax. Of course, what they'll probably say is, we cut your property taxes, which will be a lie. Because they're not cutting people's property taxes. Right. They're just cutting them from growing as... It's a great, <laughs> it's a great yeah. political argument. Well, I mean, they're, they're very that. limited in what they can do because, of, you know, the two things that influence property, ta- like the taxes you actually pay are the rate, which, you know, local government set, and the appraised value. And the state con- constitution mandates that the appraised value has to be tied to the market value. Mm-hmm. So when you have a state that's booming like Texas is and... You know, the housing market is is really hot. Like, the appraisals are going to go up. Mm-hmm. So, like, aren't the city officials going just nuts with their elected officials over this? Oh, absolutely. And um, and is that translating into, you know, uh, legislators defending their urban brethren? Uh, we'll see when it gets to the full floor, mm-hmm. uh, the Senate floor. On the House, it may be. Um, you know, the House is moving slower on this, um, has yet to have a, a hearing on its version of the bill, HB2. Um, but no, in committee, they did not get much traction at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, well, moving on to our next topic this week. Uh, Patrick, I want you to take us through the play-by-play of the San Antonio special election. Yet another San Antonio special election where things get uh, Can we hinky. put up a graphic of a toilet exploding, possibly? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so this is actually the fourth special election for a vacancy in the in the state legislature since the November elections. So uh, this one was a little more interesting than the previous three. I'll put it that way. Um, this is for the seat that was vacated by Justin Rodriguez, a, a San Antonio Democrat who was appointed to be a Bear County commissioner in January. Um, and so you had in this race, you had four Democrats and one Republican. And from the beginning of this, just looking at those numbers, it did look like another potential scenario where a Republican could easily make it into the runoff, mm-hmm. uh, just given that the Democratic vote uh, was so fractured, um, and despite the fact that it was in a traditionally Democratic district. This district, I believe, uh, you know, v- voted for Hillary Clinton by double digits easily. Um, and so what ended up happening is the Republican, Fred Rangel, uh, was the top vote getter on Tuesday night, uh, and he advanced to the runoff with one of the Democrats, Ray Lopez, uh, who's a former city council member from the area. And Ray Lopez just barely made it into the runoff. In fact, the third place finisher, Coda Rayo Garza, uh, wasn't exactly conceding on Tuesday night because she was only locked out of the runoff by, I think, 22 votes then. She was waiting for all the mail ballots to be counted. That happened on Wednesday, and uh, Lopez's actually margin over her increased a little bit. So you now have this this runoff between Lopez um, and uh, between Lo- Lopez right. and Rangel, mm-hmm. um, and it, it you know reminding a lot of people of what happened in Senate District 19 last year, where you had another special election runoff um, touching the San Antonio area, traditionally Democratic district, uh, where the Republican advanced to the runoff. Um, and then ended up uh, pulling off an Who upset. Who is Rangel's campaign manager? 
and uh, Matt, Matt Makoviak. Yeah, that so nice same, Matt Makoviak. Right, yeah. So it's, lots of experience with these runners. Yeah, He's so got he, like 17 he, jobs, right? <laughs> I think they've cloned him. Yeah. It's Shouldn't like Orphan Black. So, yeah, I mean, so there's just a lot of ingredients here that remind people of SD19. You also have high-profile endorsements from uh, Greg Abbott was the first mm -hmm. statewide official to get behind Rangel. Then shortly afterward was uh, John Cornyn, and I, I expect that parade to continue. Aren't they going to make a massive push to get this thing? Oh, for sure. On the, uh, you know, on I, the I, books I, quickly I, and low, you know, sure. quick turnaround, low turnout runoff, right? Sure. Uh, I think I would note here that the value of this seat isn't as valuable as that state senate, as a senate seat, seat was. For example, um, yeah. You know, obviously bigger, bigger office, but also you know at the time the math was it was it was an important down payment mm -hmm. on the soup, the Republican supermajority in except, the state senate. Except that I think they push really hard on this because this is becoming a pattern. Sure. And they oh yeah, really yeah. Absolutely. Show the, the Democratic Party in chair play. in Bear County should be shot out of a cannon. <laughs> God, I'm glad you finished that whole sentence. Right. <laughs> out of a cannon. <laughs> I meant it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, because don't you think it's like a complete self-own on the part of these guys? Well, something that, you know, sure. Something that happened, though, I think, in this, among the is four Democrats in this race was, that was interesting was that all four of these Democrats were very, I would argue, credible candidates. Plausible. They right. They very evenly split the, for the most part, three of them at least, Evenly split the Democratic vote in the race. Right. The challenge always is the runoff turnout, which is super, well. So super the, qu low. the qu question I have is: Are the three people who lost among the Democrats are they going to all immediately rush to endorse Ray Lopez and try to marshal all of well, their support? If immediately, you mean by the now. past forty-eight hours? No, zero. It's not happened yet. <laughs> right. So, right. Way to go, uh, you that, guys. That can happen, I'm sure. But um. all right. Well, moving on here. Let's talk about the latest Evan on uh, David Whitley. Have you speaking been speaking of cell phone? What's a cell phone? Oh, speaking of David Whitley's cell phone. Well, you know, he wrote this letter, I guess last evening, Alexa Ura got her hands on this letter that David Whitley, the Secretary of State, wrote to lawmakers. It's, it was a little unclear to me if it was a total cell phone. It seems Hashtag like an apology, sorry, not sorry. Apology, not apology. Yes, right. tell us about it, Evan. So he wrote a letter saying basically, oh, I realize that this has been a problem and controversial and all that, but I pledge to protect the rights of every voter and to pursue, you know, anybody who seeks to vote illegally, but also to preserve the rights of everybody who's legally around, uh, around to vote. This could have gone better. He's now the secretary of understatement is what he is, <laughs> right? How Seriously. long were you thinking about that one all like, night? Like five minutes, okay. like five minutes. When I focused on what you were going to make me talk about today, which was like five minutes before the podcast, I started thinking about what's a good David Whitley joke to make. That's we can it. save the last five minutes for um, Patrick's reviews of hotels and restaurants. I do. And I, want, I, want, I want you to open up Yelp while I'm doing this. Um, yep. So, so uh, Whitley is basically, I think he is aware of the fact that his nomination is at risk. Now, on the one hand, it isn't at risk because um, Kel Seliger, who was the swing vote on the nominations committee, came out last week and said, I will vote for Whitley. So the nomination can get out of the nominations committee, I believe. Question is whether he'll have the votes on the floor. And the assumption among people in the know is that if the vote is not being called for his nomination in the nominations committee now, it's because they know they don't have the votes on the floor. Right. And so just to back up a second, it was supposed to be today, correct? Uh, sure. The committee mm -hmm. vote. The committee I, I'm, vote. I'm going to go with yes on that. Yes, yes. but they have, they have... The chair initially... The chair initially today, said that it would no, be and then, yeah. and then pulled back. Right. Um, that is not to say that he will not be scheduled for a vote and get a vote and ultimately pass. I mean, Does an it, apology note? Contrition may be enough, but right. the fact is this is very controversial, and he is in the grease. He is in the grease, and it's very difficult once you're in the grease to get out of the grease, and the fact is if this nomination is voted out of committee and goes to the floor, you're going to have Democrats make a massive 
federal case of this, mm-hmm. if not a literal federal well, case. I was going to say there this. are already right. lawsuits. There are already cases. But I mean, in, in the existential sense, they're going to go crazy mm-hmm. about this, and, and, they'll, and they'll litigate this all about. And you know, he's mistreatment personally of, named as the defendant right. in a lot of these. Right. So the governor has an option, which is to say, okay, we're going to not let his nomination proceed, or there's an option that exists, whether it's the governor who activates it or somebody else. He will serve as Secretary of State for the balance of the session, but since he was not confirmed, he had been appointed in the interim, he would no longer be Secretary of State after the session. He can serve, continue to serve for the balance of the session, but if he's not actually voted in and confirmed, then that's then he mm-hmm. can't serve beyond that. And what do you think Abbott is going to do here? I mean, do you think Abbott is going to just let him wait this out and may enforce the Senate to vote one way or the other? I think what, what, that, that people in power in Texas should uh, go to Home Depot, buy lumber, build a time machine, and go back before any of this happened. I think they would like to do that. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, it was, the, the whole yeah. thing has been an absolute mess. And again, to come back to the concept of a being a cell phone, it just seems to have been not thought through. I, I mean, the, the, the job of the Secretary of State is to do stuff like this, but if you do it in a way that that is ham-handed and creates suspicion about your motives, then your the suspicions about your motives continue forever. So anytime now the Secretary of State's office does anything like this, now people are going to be suspicious of the motives of the Secretary of State because of what happened in this case, and it was all avoidable. And, and to be clear, he would need some Democratic <clears throat> support of those present. The way that right. it works, to, you right. have to, I think it's a two-thirds, right? right. You of need two-thirds. Yeah. Two-thirds of 31 in this case would be 21. 21? Right. Right? I mean, the Democrats... I don't see how... I was just, just going to say, regardless of his apology or, or what, any explanation after the fact, I don't see how a Democrat could justify, politically, justify voting for his nomination. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is such an important issue to Democrats and Democratic base in, in specific voting rights and, and how it impacts minority communities in Texas. Yep. I mean... Just for a demo, I just I think it would be devastating. I want to. I'm going to tell you a statistic that I heard the other day that I'm really obsessed with. So from the 2014, it's it's right. It it is right. Okay. From the 2014 midterm to the 2018 midterm, Hispanic turnout went up by 800,000 in Texas, from 1.1 million in the last midterm to 1.8 million in this midterm. Um, In the next 10 years, each of the next 10 years, more than 200,000 Latino Texans are going to be. become 18 or older, and 95% of those will be eligible to vote as citizens. So you're looking at potentially 2 million additional Hispanic voters on the rolls in the next 10 years. The population is changing in a way that is potentially dangerous to people who mishandle an issue like this. You have the potential to activate a a voting uh, population. I mean, there are political consequences for this stuff. And remember, you have elections in two years. If the elections in two years look anything like the elections in in 2018, there's, you know, potential danger signs ahead. You had, I mean, not on the question of ethnicity, but on the question of gender. You had Speaker Bonin yesterday say at the Young Conservatives of Texas meeting that uh, we have basically, we the Republican Party, have basically pushed intelligent women away from us in droves and are not giving them any reason to vote for us. In fact, are giving them ample reason to vote against us. His number, I don't know where the, the source of his number was, but he said, speaker yesterday, hundreds of thousands of Republican women voted for Democratic candidates in the last election. So the party has to confront on a couple of different levels the diversification of the population and of the voting population. Gender on the one hand, ethnicity on the other. And so when something like this thing with the voting rolls happens, all it does is throw gasoline on on the fire. Well, have the Democrats in the Senate come out and said one way or the other, have there been strong statements of them saying, you know, this is not someone we can we can support? 
I haven't That's seen probably a better question for Alexa, but I haven't, I haven't just as a more right. casual observer, haven't yeah, but, seen but a lot Pat, of Patrick's sense of this to me squares with what with, with, mm-hmm. with the general expectation yeah. is that this is not a uh, right. Although, a nomination that is likely to sail through, but it is rather one that is in mm-hmm. is in pretty significant trouble. Why do you think Abbott hasn't pulled him back yet? And is this a black eye for Abbott personally? I mean, this is one of his guys. Yeah, it is, of course. I mean, this is the, the of his three secretaries of state, this is the one that is the closest to yeah, him by far. Worked, and so there's certainly him. just by proximity, I think there's some li- there's some real liability there, mm-hmm. uh, politically at mm-hmm. least. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I, I think Abbott is cognizant of some of the political issues that Evan mentioned. He doesn't give voice to them or speak out about them as, as, as Bonin did the other day. But I think Abbott probably understands that as, as well. And so um, I think he's probably just waiting to see what the temperature is in the Senate and where this could go. Um, but you know, in a, in, in a session full of kumbaya and, you know, group hugs, this has been one of the rare non-kumbaya, non-huggy moments, yeah. um, which is one of the reasons why we like talking about something. Right. And I, I don't know if, does, does Whitley really have any in the Senate, does he have any strong Republican defenders? I mean, you know, what is the appetite among Senate Republicans for this to be the hill to die on. I mean, you know, their what questions is the were hard too. Yeah, I mean, Dan Patrick yeah. always, you know, hugs Greg Abbott, but I mean, what is what is Dan Patrick's, you know, appetite? Well, in fact, he's of... not Dan Patrick's guy; he's Greg Abbott's guy. Right. right. Exactly. Except the motivation for, for sure. the Senate exactly. to rally yeah, around naturally. Whitley on yeah, the yeah. basis of we're going to support the Lieutenant Governor. It's not really exactly that situation. Yeah. Right. Which is why I'm I'm curious about this yeah. sort so, of watching. Yeah, it creates interesting dynamic for sure. For the governor, yeah. and and I do wonder how much of this letter was the governor saying, you know. You better, you know, own some of this, send them a letter. Let's see at least make if it we right. can, yeah, yeah, try to make it right. But if the point of this was to write a letter that said basically sorry and now you should not now you should uh, approve my nomination, I'm not sure that a letter like this does the trick. But you can't really if you're asking for your nomination to be approved, you can't really say sorry all the way. You can't you can't be like you can't be like, can't be messed, like boy, yeah. I, I really screwed the pooch on this one. Like <laughs> Man, uh, if the phrase screwed the pooch had been in there, that might have been a way uh, to get nominated. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Now confirm me. Uh, okay, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta Dear walk, Senate, you gotta walk I screwed the yeah. pooch. Now confirm me. We've Sincerely enough, David Whitley. We've had enough lewd behavior, lewd uh, vocabulary in right, this session. Yeah. So uh, before we quit, uh, Patrick, what score did you give the uh, holiday in and Van Horn? Uh four out of five. Uh what was four the why'd they lose a star? Um, That's like a low B. No, well, I, I thought the rate was a little high. You uh, thought the rate was, what was high? the rate? Says the guy what who's was on the, the Tribune's dime. <laughs> You're Thank staying you. in Van Horn. <laughs> oh, my God. I need what to did it cost? $5? It was $153. In Van That's Horn? That's high. Yeah. That's really high. And I, yeah. would, would, Patrick you, you is going to be... What, what were your other choices? There was a... There was a um, there's the, that Van Horn, there's a, an yeah. actual like nice inn there. There was a, like a, a, there was a motel later... Uh, Motel oh, Eight. Yeah. Have they upgraded <laughs> from Motel Six? Those are the really? <laughs> now there was, 30, there was one of those Now guys. with thirty-three percent more motel. What is that? That's like a gaffe that would get a politician Coulion in trouble State. calling it a motel. Yes, a motel Eight. <laughs> yes. Seriously, we are shipping you back was, to Indiana, yeah. buddy. All right. That's it. Well, you'll be the next Motel Chief Budget eight. Officer yeah. of the Texas Tribune. He can he can a stay at a Motel Eight. I dollars. give him permission. And you find a Motel Eight, we'll leave the light on. All right, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Texas A&M University System, the Texas Dental Association, the Texas Hospital Association, and the Texas Farm Bureau, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Evan, Brandon, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. You would never use, do I have to talk you